0: Hello and welcome to the latest Science for Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Joe Dorsetti. So Joe has over 35 years experience in sport coaching and training. He has a passion for human movement and he's coached elite and professional athletes across disciplines of five continents and through the last nine Olympic cycles. And over the last 20 years, Joe has pioneered wearable resistance which makes him the perfect person today to discuss how wearable resistance could be improving your running performance. So, without further ado, it's time to welcome Joe onto the show. So, Joe, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's a pleasure to
1: have you here. Yeah, mate, it's great to be here. Finally, it's um, really excited to talk to you and uh, share a little bit about what we've been uh, been doing. Fantastic. So, can you give us a quick introduction
0: as to who you are and what you've been up to until now?
1: Well, as I told you, I uh, um, just got back from holiday, so we're slammed today, and the New Year's hitting us fast, like I guess everybody, I hope. I'm Joe, obviously, and uh, I am the CEO and founder of Leela Movement Technology, and I'm the guy who actually sort of created the modern twist on wearable resistance, which is the Exogen wearable resistance uh, training kit. And uh, from a personal background, you know, I've been doing this for about 35 years in high-performance sport. Uh, working across originally from Canada, um, spent a long time there, was in the NBA, worked in the NHL, worked with the NFL team, Major League Baseball team, Sport Canada, Team Canada, got an opportunity to come out to Asia for the Sydney Olympics to run an Olympic program and sort of got stuck in over this part of the world and have been out here for the last 23 years and, and uh, started on the Exogen journey with wearable resistance almost 20 years ago now, 2003. Well, wow, that's a, that's a long time. So can you give us a quick
0: uh, rundown of what wearable resistance is because obviously people are going to hear resistance and they're going to think all right, heavy stuff and wearable sounds like clothes. But like is it heavy clothes? How do,
1: how does that work? Yeah, and and you know, well actually sort of wearable resistance is the term I sort of coined. It's sort of like TRX coined suspension training, right? Because what we found was when I started developing wearable resistance this suit with weight on it ultimately it's clothing with weight, but it's very specific clothing. And we needed, we needed a term that made sense. And I think people in the industry understand that resistance ultimately means load, right? You can interchange load, weight, resistance. It's all, it's all the same, but loaded, weight, weight, loaded, you know, wearable resistance seemed to be the right term because ultimately that describes best what it is we're doing with it. It's weight that you wear which is a marked change from what we do with traditional resistance. And that's weight that you use. It's applied externally. And so I think that's probably, you know, going to down the road, the question on it: what's the big distance, why is wearable resistance deserve its own category is because it becomes part of your movement. So with traditional resistance, you have to be taught how to use that weight you know, a kettlebell, a cable, a tubing, a 1080. And so the first thing the strength coach or the coach has to do is, all right, I'm going to teach you the technique for a squat or a power clean or, you know, a landmine, whatever it might be. But with wearable resistance, you're not doing that. You're taking a look at, these are the movements we're doing for sport. And now we're adding loading to that to accentuate that. And so that's ultimately what wearable resistance is. And I think for people listening uh, to keep it simple, it's just weight. And the old school wearable resistance is like wrist weights and hand weights and ankle weights and a weighted vest. And the difference now, though, is it's a lot more slick. It, it meets the laws of training and it's targeted for movement, not just adding weight. And it's a lot lighter than people think. So, uh, you know, our weighted vests and ankle weights and wrist weights are kind of measured in pounds and kilos. You know, our loadings measured in grams and, and um, ounces. So and that's- that, that, that that really interests me, right? Like the
0: obviously, it doesn't need to be kilos because it's going to slow you down a lot. So you're playing with like quite a specific movement. Let's say running, for example, um, and you're adding just a little bit of weight on. If it's a couple of hundred grams, like how much difference does that make to to running?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. So when I started with this, right, I was working with I was training sprinters in 2003 uh, and we were preparing them for Athens 2004. They were uh, Olympic qualification. And so the idea was where it came from. And I think this is important is we were on the track with very high level you know, elite sprinters and pulling sleds. And the whole conversation was around running with the sled and the coach trying to cue correct technique. But the athlete battling with what the sled was Uh, on limiting them to do right. So yes, the sled had value at a part, but you couldn't go through a transition phase properly because you have to battle this external uh, equipment. And so I was thinking, well, how do we add those kilos onto the body? And I was thinking, man, you got to add, you have to add it somehow on clothing. But once I started building the kit, I was always trying to create a heavy weight training tool, like a, you know, a 10 kilo weighted vest or a 10 kilo sled. And then I realized That's almost impossible because then you just end up with something that's going to either hurt people or it slows them down. And so I actually kind of thought this is a silly idea. It's not going to work until I started. I kind of accidentally tested it on some very elite athletes and they didn't, they loved the fact that it was light because they were saying like, Joe, we don't want to be doing the gym here on the track. You know, we don't want to be doing the gym on the basketball court or a tennis court. We want to be doing the sport. And the first thing that kind of exploded for me was stop thinking heavy. If you're working on sport or even just the average person doing a 10K run, the the load had to be light. And we never knew exactly how light that actually meant. And and that was really the first discovery for us. Like what you just said, you know, most athletes are training with less than a kilo. And that's across the board from, you know, recreational athletes, weekend warriors, To some of the very best olympians in the world or pros in the world and you you mentioned technique as well right like how does it influence technique
0: so let's say you've got um on the on the calf or the ankle somewhere you've got a weight obviously when you're Hmm. moving through your running technique that's going to have a serious impact further up the chain so if you're if you're changing the weight and therefore, resistance. How much does that change technique? And if it does change technique, is that for the better or could that be detrimental to performance?
1: Yeah, and that's always you know a coach's first thing they ask is, uh, all right, is this going to affect my technique? Because you're not using it in the gym, right? So it's both an SNC's tool, but it's also a coaching athlete tool. And so the very first thing we did, we partnered out there. We met up with uh, you know John Cronin actually approached us out at uh, AUT Sprints, Auckland University of Tech. And we said, you know, we got to find out, we got to validate that we're not affecting technique with the data. And so the very first thing we did was studies in running, and we looked at upper body loading, limb loading, lower body loading. And two things became really clear. Number one, when the loading is the optimal load, you not only won't negatively affect technique, but you can actually accentuate it. So if you have an athlete who's not engaging certain muscle group, we can target that. If you get an athlete, like an understrider, well, we can create an overstriding pattern. If you had an overstrider, we can create an understriding pattern. And so the load starts becoming a coaching cue, but, and it's not being, it's not even being used for strength or power. It's actually being used because to, to accentuate something on a moment arm or in a movement. So the athlete creates a better connection to a skill. And a, and a really good example is something like posture. If you put a small weight across the shoulder, immediately that pushes a body down. So the first thing you'll see a person do is all of a sudden you'll see, like everybody does with posture, all of a sudden they lift their shoulders back and they're like, oh, wow, that weight's really pushing me down. I have to be aware of that and say, good. Now go for your run. I'm gonna leave that light weight there. I want that weight to push you and make you aware of pressing your hips up, keeping out of the sitting position and keeping a tall position. And so ultimately what happened is when the rate is the right weight in the right place, you've created a coaching tool, just like the coach's hand being there, but the coach can't be there while you're moving. Right. And so that was the next thing that we found one re- real sport is at light speed. Cause it's fast, lightweight. And two where you put the weight is as or more important than how much weight you put. And uh, And so I want to get onto that in a minute as
0: well. Like the, the really, the specifics of how you choose that, that's, that seems so important that you don't just put it in random places, right?
1: Yeah. It's uh, and, and, and that's (laughs) the, so this is the thing we call demystifying it. Cause now, you know, by this point in the conversation, people are like, okay, I get this, I get weight, I understand. But now they're asking, okay, so how do I know where to start? And. And I go back with the guy, Nick Winkleman from Exos. And when we first went down there and were invited to come show them and they were bringing it in for their NFL combine, I wanted to. The first thing he said to me was, he goes, man, Joe, every coach in the world has tried to figure out how to glue weight to the body. He said, now you figured it out. We're going to spend the next two decades just learning how to use it. And so that's, that's almost been what, you know, that's what it's been with us. And so we've come up with some really key guidelines on how do you load? Where do you load? So I think the right thing to understand is it's actually simpler than you think, and Matt. So what I would do with an athlete right off the bat is we put the piece of kit on that, you know, your starter kit for your sport. Let's say you're a sprinter or a runner calf sleeves. And the first thing you do on your first session, go out there, take a small amount of weight, go for a run and move the weight around the body part, put it in the front, put it in the back. Put it at the ankle, put it at the knee, put it internal and diagonal. One run, two kilometers later, you'll come back with an acute understanding of where the load moving around different positions affects your body. And nobody had to explain it to you because you feel it. And so the next point would be, well, how do you know where, which one to use for you? I tell you, we do this all the time. And they will. A person, I ask them, where did the load feel like it was working? And they'll say, "Well, you know what? When I put it on the back of the calf, I can feel my, my glutes engaging, and I know I have weak glutes in my run, so I really want to work on that." There you go. And so we have this simple process of called loading the problem. So let's say you're a, a cricketer and you're bowler, you're a fast bowler, and we're working around the shoulder. Then we're going to load around the shoulder. And I have a case study or two I'll talk to you about. You go. You. you it's just like in the gym, you know. Um. We know if a person comes and said, my upper body's weak. Well, your S&C already knows they've got a toolbox of upper body exercises that they're going to prescribe. They'll find out which muscle was weak. They'll go in and start applying their tool. They'll put it into a program. And six weeks later, you test and you see, all right, that shoulder strength is, is up. With exogen, it's the same sort of thing, but now it's related to a movement. So let's say somebody's saying, I'm slow in my one, two, three first steps out of the block, like a sprinter. OK, so early acceleration. Well, you watch with the coach, you take a look at those steps and you think, well, where's the slowness coming from? Is it the recovery from the front of the hip? Then, if it's the front of the hip, let's put the load on the front of the hip because that's the problem. And so loading the problem gets really intuitive. And most of our coaches are and our trainers, you know, we've got a lot of education online that actually explains this for sports. So it's almost, what do you call it, dummy proof. But for most people to understand when you feel this weight on your body, the light goes off. Number two is if you're not sure where you start, you start where the problem is. So if somebody says, yeah, my glutes and hams are weak, that tells you you need the shorts and we need to get that load into your glutes and hams. And ultimately, probably into that shank because that's what the hamstring is lifting. Does, does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. And
0: um, I'm interested in to touch on the, the physiological adaptations. So we've covered technique um but what happens physiologically when you're adding even lightweight to those lever arms
1: yeah yeah that so that was this kind of next question from the science right we wanted to know because people were starting to look at number one was we didn't want to affect technique number two is we don't want to get anybody injured a lightweight moving at high speed obviously has a tremendous impact on the body or can you know and the whole the cricketers the fast bowlers and the baseball players with that 500 gram ball you know that's that's the whole industry, all right. Shoulder injury. And so the first thing we looked at was what happens when we take a load and we apply it, say, in a proximal position near, and we'll go to the shoulder because we're talking about throwing. What if we put a small, hundred or 200, 300 gram load up near the shoulder joints, above the bicep, versus down at the elbow, versus down at the wrist? Well, you and I know as soon as you you know when you creep, when you lengthen your moment arm. You're adding more force. The further that load gets from the rotating joint, this in case being the shoulder, the heavier it's going to be on the muscles and support of the shoulder. And now we have validated that. So here's a really cool example. If you take a half kilo load, so you go back to that half kilo to one kilo load, and you load it proximally around the joints, and you, and you keep the same weight, don't increase the and you throw a ball or you do a high speed hip movement like running or jumping if you just move that load from the shoulder to the elbow or from the hip to the knee you increase rotational workload by 25% just moving that load down the shaft and and now that's, now it depending on how much the load is but so this is one of our guidelines is the first thing we tell people is don't add more weight start low going from proximal to distal and so it, it, and, and people do it intuitively and they'll just turn around. Like Justin Gatlin was a perfect example. When they first started with him last year before he retired, big, strong guy, you know, world-class sprinter, one of the best that's ever done it, put on the product. First, when he put it on, he said, oh, it's so light. I'd, I, I, I'm, You know, no big deal for me. He went and did one sprint. He comes back to his coach, Dennis, and he just says, this is a lot heavier than you think, <laughs> you know, because he's moving at speed. And then they said, all right, let's just start with a little bit of weight on the hip. And then, you know, once he said, okay, I can handle more, boom, they moved it to the knee and now he's like, oh, wow, I changed everything. And so, and they just got it, you know, you can feel that. So it was really important for us to validate that in the research. There's quite, on our, on our website, you can look at the studies. I think we've got over, over 35 published research studies that we did. Well, we, as in our research team supported all independently through AUT sprints, you know, JC and the guys there have been awesome. Um, The other one that's really interesting is this whole thing of kinetic energy. So if you take a look at a squat and we wanted to do, we've done a bit of comparative data between traditional resistance, which is external loading, right? What we normally have versus wearable, which is essentially an internal load. You look at the kinetic energy of a hundred kilo squat versus a one kilo weighted sprint. Now, just by load, you'd think a hundred kilo squat is going to have a tremendous amount. But the problem with kinetic energy is your velocity is your acceleration is squared, right? Your velocity is squared. So 100 kilo, let me just uh, pull that up. 100 kilo, I'm just looking at some data here in front of me just to get the right numbers. So, you know, kinetic energy, it's one half mass times velocity squared, right? So 100 kilo squat, average squat speed is about half a meter a second, right? gives you a kinetic energy of about 17.4 kilograms per meter per second. A one-kilo sprint or movement at the hip is very light, but the speed is 6.1 meters per second. And now you've squared that, which gives you a kinetic energy of 18.6 kilograms per meter per second. So a one-kilo weighted hip movement has a higher kinetic energy than a 100-kilo squat. And what that tells us, as you know, is the energy required, the output in high-speed movement can be considerably greater or at least as much as traditional heavy resistance. And, you know, when athletes were going and training with our kit and they were putting on just a few hundred grams, and, you know, we've got some of the best sprinters in the world doing, you know, 50, 50 meters, 100, 200, 400 meters, they were coming back and they were saying, you know, my RPEs are going up like double. And and we didn't, and but the, the reason was is that light weight was staying is also being used through the entire rotational pattern. And this is an important point. Your 1080s, your weighted vests, your a lot of your other speed movement kit, your sleds, they only work at the moment you apply force in the ground. One of the most important things in running and sport in general is something called in air mechanics right whether it's basketball or whether it's sprinting or running but the whole recovery of that leg you know again when you lift that leg up swing it through its recovery phase and before you place it down with wearable resistance the load is on that whole movement and so you only feel the the the, the energy output of a resisted movement like again a 1080 or a, or a weighted vest at the moment you touch the ground but wearable resistance you're lifting it, you're moving it through its cycle, your whole limb, your whole you're, you're you know, at hypergravity, you're accelerating your body weight, right? And so this is one of the things we we were really surprised at the beginning. We were we were just getting such tremendous RPE scores from athletes, right? And they were saying, like, dude, that you know, this hundred grams made it, t- you know, 50 percent harder. And then when we looked at what was happening to kinetic energy and rotational workload, we started to understand why.
0: I think that's a, that's a really interesting point, and with with that in mind as well, I'd love to get a case study on how you've done this, right? So, if if you're an athlete listening and you're like, "Oh, you know what? This sounds brilliant," but has anyone used this before to improve their sprint time? Like, how would you go about bringing in someone who's probably a, a decent level of of running ability, and you're going to give them the kit to to use and to wear? How are they going to improve their sprint time
1: using this? Yeah, there's sort of three cases on that. First, and if there's SNCs out there, they'll understand it's a conditioning tool. It is still just weight, and so your general pattern and understanding of periodizing weight training kind of applies, right? You progress it, except you progress in grams, hundreds of grams rather than kilos, right? So maybe you'll go up 200 grams a week for four weeks, rather than going up, you know, two, three, four, ten kilos. So the rules of periodization still apply. So the question about improvement is always, well, what improvement are you looking for? If you're looking for a general conditioning improvement, then one of the case studies we have is like Argentina football. So we did, uh, it was published research. And of course, now they're the world champions. We had a wonderful study with Argentina's national under-19 club team, Club uh, Belgrano. Uh, So some of the best under-19 players in the world. They put Exogen into an eight-week study and they put it into their warm-up. OK, so the kids just put on cast sleeves. They wore somewhere in the range from 100 to 300 grams per leg. And they wore it in the warm ups four days a week, three to four days a week for eight weeks. They didn't change anything else. They did no extra training. They just had the kids wear it in the warm up and the entire conditioning cycle from everything you would expect out of the GPS data went through the roof. So that you just got a, a tremendous boost to your baseline conditioning level, because essentially we were conditioning them. By adding mass to the body. But we were doing it in a way that was reasonable, functional and optimal. And they could still use the ball. They could work their specific skills. And so right off the bat, if you're a coach thinking, I'm in a team, I want to bring my, you know, and, and we talk about that in team sport a lot is how do I bring my baseline up overall, right? Because if you bring baseline measures up, then generally, you get concurrent increase in sort of GPS data that you'll see in actual competition, right? Are they running fast? Is your there sprint, your sprint uh, repeatability more, you know, what are they doing later in the game? The second thing that you can do is very technical, technical training with it. Another case study would be from the UK, not a kind of good sprinter, one of the best in the world, uh, Daryl Nieta, who is, you know, uh, UK champion, European champion, one of the best hundred meter women in the world. I think she was in, in the final at the, At the World Championships, her coach came to us, uh, Marco, just before. And this was only two months before Eugene. And he knew the product already from his work with Su Bing Tian, who also trains with us at a China Olympic Council. You know, we helped Su Bing Tian drop from he went first sub nine with us. And then he went down to a nine, eight, five with Coach Randy. And exogen was a big part of that. So when Daryl came to us, she had a hip issue. okay, and this was a technical hip issue. She had a little, what we would call a leg. So with each stride, her right hip dropped. Basically, her hip opened, you know, and she was getting a little bit of anterior movement in the hip that made the leg, right leg recovery slow. And ultimately, that's a 0.001. But over, you know, 40 plus steps, there's your 0.1, right? So the coach approached me and said, Joe, I want to work on this. It might be a rotation issue. I'm not sure. And I said, I can see from the video, it's her right hip. And he said, yeah, you're right. So I said, well, let's load the right hip. So what we did with Exogen, we put her in the shorts, we loaded the right hip right at the right hip with about 100, 200 grams to start. And we let the coach then do his sprint program. But Exogen was working the specific high speed timing, strength and power and conditioning of that right hip muscle so that it would get stronger at high speed. And as you know, if you're not at high speed, you're not, you're not, getting the transfer right so if we had went into the gym and used a cable or a tubing and done some kind of right hip motion i promise you it would not have transferred yes her right hip in a more static or dynamic a slower environment would be stronger but it wouldn't have transferred to her stride and that's how you know and then she said her pb she dropped from a 10.95 to a 10.85 in eugene And coach called up all happy. And of course, it wasn't Exogen wasn't the magic, but this case happens a lot. I can give you everybody from the Golden State Warriors to the New Zealand All Blacks. I have these stories all day long where people came in and use us in that last percentage to really change performance. And so. I think for everybody listening is if you've got a general conditioning issue, we can do that in a very sport specific way. If you've got a technical issue, we can do that in a very sport specific way. And the last area is return to play. Um, you know, when athletes are coming back, it's really hard to get high speed motion again, right? The physio sign off, everything's generally good. Then they go, they have their first day back on the field and they realize, yeah, I'm not ready yet. And so And so we've done that now with a bunch of very high level cases like the All Blacks, like uh, uh, several of the world's best sprint team in that. Kenny Bednarek and other guys like that, the 200 meter Olympic silver medalist, really just helping provide higher specificity and movement so they can return to top speed with confidence.
0: I think that's absolutely excellent. So, Joe, massive thanks for your time and effort today. I really appreciate it. Where can people find more about you
1: and uh, the system? Yeah, just check out our our, our website at uh, lilateam.com. Uh, and then Lila Athletes on Instagram, you know, reach out. You can find me online too. I'm always pretty open. I'm talking to coaches, Matt, as you know. I'm, I I love this stuff and I'm always willing to share. So if you, if you want to find a little bit more, I think there's a lot of good information out there through those portals.
0: Absolutely fantastic. So, Joe, massive thanks for your time. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to speaking again soon. All
1: right. Cheers. Thanks about that, Matt. Uh, look forward to talking again soon,
0: too. Cheers, buddy. And that's it once again. A massive thanks to Joe for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure you do at home, too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Science of Sport Coach Academy. And the Coach Academy is a series of lectures broken down into bite-sized chunks. And that means you can fit them in and around your busy coaching schedule. Every time you complete a course, you get a certificate of completion, which means you can prove your ongoing education. So if you're interested in joining us in the Coach Academy, all you have to do is click the link in the show notes and you can get in there completely for free for the next seven days. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it would be fantastic if you could recommend us to a coach, a colleague, an athlete or a friend. That means that we can keep bringing the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me, Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.